We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. We're fighting for something that uh, haven't been accomplished in a long time here in uh, Phoenix. And the last two games, it felt like we lost the game. Uh, we got to do respect to San Antonio and Memphis that they play hard and they got the victory. But I think we made mistakes that we shouldn't have done it. And it would it would have put us in a better position to win those kind of games. And uh, down the road, a 80, 82 game schedule uh, in a tight Western Conference is going to hurt. Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Again, the Suns had an interesting game against the Spurs that we have to talk about. Very frustrating. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? You know what? I'm doing good. Suns Twitter's bugging out a little bit after an 0-2 week. Well, okay, so I guess this is a short week, right? Like For our us. Last ep- our last episode was five days ago or, or something like that. So there's only been two games. The Suns lost both of those games. Uh, and there's a lot of pessimism going around right now. And I understand why, but... This is the week of DeAndre Ayton's return. This, you know, this is the time for Suns fans to to feel a little bit of optimism. And I know Devin Booker, you know, whatever is going on with his wrist, but I'm feeling pretty good right now. And uh, I hope a lot of other Suns fans out there are feeling the same way. Yeah, I would say that Devin Booker's wrist, his hand, his forearm, whatever it is, is the biggest story of the week, which is hard for us because when the biggest story of the week is just an injury that we have no information about, uh, that gives us basically nothing to talk about uh, as a podcast. It seems like he had problems that maybe either occurred in the Minnesota game or at practice. The wrist was wrapped for the Memphis game. He got hit pretty hard in the Memphis game in the hand, and in the next game he just didn't play. Um, and 
Yeah, no Devin Booker. We don't know if he's going to be back. It seems like he's feeling a lot better, thanks to Kellen Olsen, who got some nice uh, information from him at practice today. Uh, it seems like he's feeling better, but there's no word as to whether or not he'll be back in the next few games. A weird week for the Suns coming up. Uh, and just like you said, with DeAndre Ayton coming back. That Spurs game, though, I think was a fascinating game. It's a, it's the first time we've really gotten a look at the Suns without Devin Booker this year, with Ricky Rubio in the lineup. It's basically the first time we've ever seen what a team built around Ricky Rubio would look like, uh, kind of. Uh, basically, the first time in his whole career that we've ever seen that. And uh, he he reached a level, of, like, a, like a superstar level of play in this game, which is something that he can do every once in a while, not sustainable in any way. But he had 25 points and 13 assists with only two turnovers. Really excellent game from Ricky Rubio. Kind of a fun game to watch with all the frustrating things that happen. What did you think of that Spurs game? Do, do you think that was a fun game to watch? I actually That was a pretty know, boring game to watch. It was a, it was interesting because it was so close. Yeah, and that's it wasn't what it, was. it wasn't that exciting at all. Well, I actually thought like watching Ricky Rubio just like have full understanding that all of this was on him was kind yep. of fun because he he, he clearly knew that he was the best player on the floor for the Suns and he had to play like it in order for the team to win. The game mattered to him a lot. It's the most I've seen him talking to the refs. He addressed the team or I'm sorry, addressed the arena before the game in Spanish, obviously his native tongue in Mexico City, able to speak in the language that he grew up speaking. Uh, something about the game made me feel interested in just watching it. Regardless of that massive Devin Booker yawn in the second quarter, I actually ca- kind of did have fun watching this game until the last few minutes of the game where it just became insanely frustrating. <laughs> mistakes by the Suns, yes. Uh, mistakes by the refs as well, regardless of what the last two-minute report uh, says, which just came out a few hours ago. Uh, oh, I didn't look at it. it. It only details one incorrect call in right. the last few minutes of the game, and it's not what you would expect. Uh, so that that ball that we thought went off to Rosen did go off Mikhail Bridges, like uh, at the final buzzer, not at the final buzzer, but with like two or three seconds left. Um, they showed a replay on the yeah. Spurs broadcast that never got shown on the Suns one. But I know the play you're thinking of was a few seconds before that with about like eight seconds left. And that it's actually kind of funny because that was Ricky Rubio's second turnover, right? You said he had yeah. 13 assists, two turnovers. Um, the Suns improperly inbounded the ball. You could say that Rubio got fouled on that play. But that was his second turnover technically by the box score. Yeah, the, I mean, the video clearly shows him being grabbed and held before the ball is inbounded, which is a foul. I mean, by the rules, that's a foul, and the game would have been over at that point. The Suns were up by two. Technically, if it was if he was fouled before the inbounds, the, Sun would, the Suns would have gotten two shots and the ball, yeah. uh, which would have resulted in likely a four-point lead and the ball, which would have resulted in more fouls, which could have been a five- or a six-point lead with the Spurs getting the ball back with probably around five seconds left in the game. If that were to happen, it would have been an easy win. Well, not an easy win, a difficult win for the Suns, but uh, a, a win for sure. Uh, instead, it as soon as the ball went out of bounds off camera, because the Suns broadcast just didn't catch it, it happened so fast, you just knew that the Spurs were going to go down there and hit a three. It's in the history of of, of this matchup. It's it's just the thing that would happen. if If something happens... That seems a little unfair at the time. The Spurs always, always, always capitalize on it to their credit. Uh, but it, man, is it insanely frustrating to watch? Yeah, well, it's frustrating because the Spurs aren't even good anymore. They're they're not 
the scary team that they once were. But then again, the Suns aren't that good yet either. We're pretty okay right now, but we're not, especially without Devin Booker. Uh, the potential of this team is limited. Now, I think Monty took the mature approach after this game. Obviously, he can't uh, directly talk shit about the refs or else he's going to see a hefty fine from Adam Silver. But so he chose to highlight the Suns uh, taking two technical fouls late in the game from there was a double tech on Devin Booker and Ricky Rubio. That's two points right there that the Suns surrendered to the Spurs late in the game. And also fouling all of the three-point shooters. I was looking for the stat for this, and I don't know if there's a place online publicly where you can actually see it. But anecdotally, it really does feel like the Suns are awful about fouling three-point shooters this season. Yeah. And and there's something to be said there that it's good. It's kind of the opposite problem you had in previous years where the Suns just didn't contest shots. Obviously, you would rather they have this situation where they're actually doing a pretty good job of contesting shots. You know, we've talked before when Mike Prada, obviously a couple of months ago now or maybe a month ago, came on our podcast, talked about the way the Suns have played defense leads to allowing more open shots. But Monty Williams has put an emphasis on uh, getting after guys to really go and contest as hard as possible. The thing is, when you're running all around the court, bouncing, you know, side to side, throwing your full momentum at a player in order to contest a three, there's a decent chance that you're not going to be able to stop yourself in time and you're going to make some contact and you're going to be called for the foul. And that's definitely something that hurt them yesterday against the Spurs. And it's something that has hurt them all season long. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, exactly. If you think about the, the way that they play defense, the scheme that they've been playing defense for, a lot of it is sort of packing the paint and then sprinting back to the three-point line. And it's from guys you wouldn't expect. You know, Saric is, is a pretty smart player, and he's done it a few times. Mikhail Bridges has had a few fouls on the three-pointers, and, and it's just, it really hurts because that is like, points per possession-wise, a foul on a three-point shot is the most effective shot in the game because you can easily make free throws and you get three chances to do it. And the quote that you were thinking of was Monty Williams. He said, how many times did we foul and give up an N1? And how many times did we foul three-point shooters? We got two technical fouls. That's a lesson for all of us. I told our guys, we got to grow up. And, you know, it's funny that he said that. I found myself thinking halfway through the game, there's been so many dumb young guy fouls in this game. And it's frustrating to watch because at a certain point, if you want to win, if you want to make the playoffs, you have to win games like that. You have to be able to uh, not foul in times like that and win against the Spurs who've been struggling mightily or win against the Grizzlies who've been struggling uh, mightily. Now, mind you, playing without Devin Booker or playing with a hobbled Devin Booker the way they did in the Memphis game is very, very difficult. He's clearly the best player on the team and to to game plan without him is hard. I mean, that's when you become very lucky that you have a guy like Ricky Rubio who can improvise uh, and and find guys open. I think the best example of that was the play that broke down that resulted in Kelly Oubre hitting the three-pointer that sent the game to overtime to begin with. Mm -hmm. It was that extra dribble or two by Ricky Rubio that got Kelly Oubre open in the corner. That's what Ricky Rubio does. That's what excellent, excellent playmakers do. They find guys in situations like that where uh, the defense kind of shuts down the first or the second option. He could have easily gone for... Uh, the layup, and then they would have been down by one and played the foul game. Instead, he took that extra dribble or two, 
Found Kelly Oubre open in the corner, and he hit that amazing shot. Kelly Oubre has been very clutch lately. We talked about it a little bit before. He did it again yesterday. Uh, We're recording this on Sunday. He did it again yesterday, and uh, he's been really impressive. And it's, it's hard without Devin Booker, but I thought, you know, overall, I did find myself thinking, this looks pretty good for a team without Devin Booker. It's just things happened that resulted in a loss. I've got the stats to back it up on Kelly's clutchness, too. It, yes. It's, it's surprising. So uh, if you define clutch as in the last three minutes of the game um, with the score within five points, either five points ahead or five points behind, doesn't matter. Um, Ubre this season, obviously very small sample size, but he's five for nine from the field. He's three for six from deep as a guy who's only like a 33% three-point shooter. Um, and he's five for six from the free throw line. So he's hit some big shots. Actually, Devin Booker using the same uh, time frame and the same uh, considerations for what clutchness is, he's only five for 13 from the field and one yeah. for six from deep, which I thought was interesting. That's not to say Booker isn't clutch because again, this is such a small sample size that it doesn't even really matter. One or two shots rimming out could severely impact the way we look at these stats. Um, but I do think it's interesting that those numbers back up what we're seeing. Kelly Oubre really is hitting a lot of big shots in key moments. And it was interesting to see Ricky Rubio's approach to the game uh, yesterday, because I think ideally the way that Rubio has been playing he wanted to get Ubre involved early in the game, uh, but then Kelly really didn't wake up in this one until the fourth quarter. And so the way that we saw Rubio play offensively, some of the pull-up shots that he was taking were objectively kind of bad shots, <laughs> but just someone had to be willing to to go into this game with that level of aggressiveness, given Kelly's game being off and Devin Booker being out, and Rubio was that guy. Uh, And and not only did he take those shots, but he had such an adept way yesterday of doing the thing that he's been doing for so long, which is being uh, ahead of the defense, you know, two or three steps and being able to look at guys and then fire off no look passes. Like there was this one stretch for Rubio uh, in the middle of yesterday's game where he hit a pull up three, which he doesn't usually do. And then on the next play, hesitated, looked as if he was maybe going to go for another pull up three, then looks towards a, a driving or a cutting cam johnson in the corner as if he's going to pass to him in the corner looks off the defense so the defense is running towards cam in the corner hesitates again for a split second drives in and then has an easy dump off pass to dario Saric underneath the basket because he's been able to clear out the rest of the defense just by doing nothing other than a split second hesitation move with his dribble and looking like ricky rubio's eyes are so scary to opposition defenses because of what that could potentially mean for the Suns offense yeah he's like a he's like a quarterback (laughs) he can fool defenses with his eyes and I think his ball handling the best uh, we've talked about it a lot I talked about it a lot in the Ty Jerome video that I we released before the season the best playmakers create assists with their ball handling and he's the best at it right now and and that 25 and 13 was an excellent game for him. We've talked about, I thought something was interesting that he did in this game that I don't think he's going to do going forward. We've talked about taking advantages of mismatches a lot. The Suns do it a lot. It, they they work for the switch and then they, they try to take advantage of the mismatch as quickly as possible. But usually what they do is they work the ball as close to the basket as possible on a mismatch to do post-ups, something that's going to benefit uh, DeAndre Ayton when he comes back. The only player really that isolated against big men this season has been Devin Booker. De- you know, if, if a big switches out into Devin Booker, uh, he'll back him up and he'll take him off the dribble. In this game, Ricky Rubio did it a few times 
which is not something that really, I don't think he's done at all this season. He had one uh, against LaMarcus Aldridge. I think they were both against LaMarcus Aldridge where he backed him up and just crossed him over a few times and hit a pull-up mid-range. And then the other one was the uh, pull-up three-pointer that you were talking about. Uh, It's rare that he does that. And I think it's it's to his credit once again he's he's a player that recognizes what's needed offensively and will do what he can uh, to make sure to do it and in this game he was really really excellent it's disappointing that it didn't just end normally i guess it's really kind of destiny right if the spurs are going to win it might as well be something insane that happens at the end of the game so that we have something to complain about afterwards uh, i suppose it, uh, yeah it hurts because these games really matter um, because yeah. there is this tier, the Suns. What are the? What's the record currently? Are they twelve and fourteen? I lose track. No, I think it's eleven and let me, let me and, look it up. <laughs> I can't believe neither of us know. <laughs> eleven and fourteen. Sorry, guys, don't listen to us. Okay, we're eleven and fourteen. <laughs> Usually, you would not be tied for the eighth seed in the Western Conference with an eleven and fourteen record. That is an absurd premise. If you've been following the NBA for a while, any time in the past thirty years, frankly then you should know that the Western Conference, you don't get in uh, the playoffs if you're on pace for like 38 wins. And yet this year, there is this tier forming from seeds number 7 or 8 all the way down to like 11 or 12. And it's teams like Phoenix, Oklahoma City, Minnesota that the Suns have already played a couple of times, San Antonio, Portland, which hasn't gotten together yet. Uh, Those teams, those matchups, whether the Suns win or lose those games is going to make or break their season. Because having tiebreakers based on their season series against those teams, that could potentially be the difference in getting them in to the eighth seed at the end of the season. You know, that's to say that they don't get DeAndre Ayton back and pull away and start doing so well that they don't even need to worry about the seventh or eighth seed and now they're the sixth seed and they're on pace for 50 wins. Assuming that that doesn't happen, as great as that would be, they need to win these games right now against team, uh, teams like the Spurs. So it, it hurt a little bit extra for that reason. But you've got a couple more games coming up this week. You've got a game against Portland and a game against Oklahoma City this week. Both of those teams are right neck and neck with us in the standings right now. Uh, and you have to win those matchups. Yeah, 100%. And that's why it's such a good thing that they beat Minnesota again uh, last week. Uh, that was a very important game to win. And I, th- I don't know that they're going to play Minnesota four times. I believe it's only three times. And if it is only three times, they, they have that matchup won because they've won twice already this year. And those are games I think that you can tell that Devin, mean a lot to Devin Booker. So it's it's nice to win those games. So you talked about it. This week is an interesting week. There's four games coming up this week, two back-to-backs, basically. Uh, there's Monday, Tuesday, and then Friday, Saturday. The Suns are on two back-to-backs this week. Both of them are home and away. Um, the first one's home and away for Portland, LA, and then the next one's away at OKC, back home and against Houston. But the big story for the week, it's obvious DeAndre Ayton is coming back. Now, he's not going to be back against Portland. Hopefully, Devin Booker will not only be back, but be back at playing well. Um, there is something to be said about Devin Booker not playing when he's injured. I was almost happy that he didn't play against the Spurs. Just get healthy, be as healthy as possible when DeAndre Ayton comes back so that we can see this team at full strength for once, uh, besides the first game, even in the first game, no Cam Johnson, no Ty Jerome. So it may be the first time that we'll see him at full strength if Devin Booker is healthy, but that Portland game, notwithstanding, DeAndre Ayton's coming back. We should talk about what that means. I think the biggest thing for DeAndre Ayton coming back, obviously, is everyone's back into their normal 
proper position. If DeAndre Ayton immediately starts with, which at this point I think it's pretty clear that he should. Aaron Baines is not playing like he was, and he can't he can't sustain this. Aaron Baines is getting injured. I think he's been el- elbowed in the face like fifteen times this season, and mm-hmm. uh, I just don't know that he can sustain that. So he comes in and starts. That pushes Frank Kaminsky back to the backup power forward role. It it nice nicely slots Aaron Baines back into the backup center role. Um, what are your thoughts just in general on DeAndre Ayton coming back? And we'll, we'll have an extended conversation about this because I think it's going to be interesting. Well, it'll be nice to have a fully healthy rotation. You know, you look at a guy like, first of all, I agree with you. I want to say that off the bat. Um, it's no conversation anymore. Aaron Baines should go back to the bench. It was nice for us to fantasize about that, I guess, for, uh, for a week or two, whenever we did. Um, but he's taking too many hits and he's not hitting his threes to the same extent anymore. So that's that's kind of what happens um i think it changes what the sun's offense looks like potentially uh potentially substantially uh when you bring deandre Ayton into that starting role and that's going to be the most interesting thing for me to observe this week and in weeks beyond um but also you look at a guy like frank kaminsky i've been so impressed with frank kaminsky over the past week uh let me tell you and and having a guy like that where frank is a inconsistent player and he's going to kill you uh, with frustration over his streakiness sometimes but right now he's currently on one of his hot streaks having him be able to slot into the backup power forward position is going to be really good for this team um, and, and should be a massive improvement there what DeAndre Ayton specifically the player brings to the Suns now that they've been missing is rebounding to a large degree and his ability to create his own offense this is a guy who was one of the best post-up players in the NBA as a rookie, which is incredibly rare. He is one of the best post-up rookie centers of all time, and that's not an exaggeration. There are very few, historically, if you go back and look at the efficiency, because the NBA has this tracking data on their website now, there are very, very few centers who've been able to score out of the post at such a young age with such an ability. And DeAndre Ayton is one of those guys. He finished in the 75th percentile league-wide as a post-up scorer last season. He posted up four and a half possessions per game last season. And the reason that's interesting is because without DeAndre Ayton, the Suns offense has not had a post-up player. Even Aaron Baines, even Dario Saric, guys like that who will occasionally dabble in the post a little bit, those guys are not averaging more than one possession per game as it currently stands uh, in the post. So when you bring DeAndre Ayton into that equation, if he's going to operate in this Suns offense like he did in Igor's offense, roughly, um, then we're about to see a lot more post-ups. We're going to see a guy who can draw double teams out of the post, who can use his gravity to kind of suck the defense in, and then make smart reads to pass out to shooters on the three-point line. So that's the first thing that's really exciting. And then the second thing that's really exciting is rebounding. Uh, He is just a phenomenal, phenomenal rebounder. And the Suns right now are a bottom five team in offensive rebounding. Uh, I am fully confident that with DeAndre Ayton back fully healthy in the lineup, they are at least an average rebounding team. They're not going to be an elite one, but Dario Saric has been holding his own at power forward, uh, and DeAndre Ayton is very, very good as well. I think the DeAndre Ayton conversation has now sort of been boiled down to two different camps of people who are almost performatively excited that he's coming back. Like excited, but like, playing it up a little bit, I I would say. And I think there are reasons to be very excited. And then the other side of that coin is people who just 
are incapable of appreciating what he is good at and what he was excellent at in his rookie year and how much he can bring to this team going forward, likely because they're disappointed about the pick in general. They wanted someone else. The The conversation that I want to have is just a reminder for people. Uh, just like you said, DeAndre Ayton was very, very, very good in his rookie year. The Suns team itself was awful. It was a really bad Suns team, and I think that affected Devin Booker, as we've seen, it affected his efficiency in a negative way. It's possible and likely that it affected DeAndre Ayton's efficiency in a negative way. And when you talk about him as one of the most efficient rookies of all time, as somebody who took quite a bit of mid-range shots, it's not just like he was DeAndre Jordan and just dunking every shot. He actually created for himself. He took some mid-range shots. He took some fadeaways. He was still insanely efficient. Last season, Ayton was second on the team in VORP value over replacement player. That is indicative of him essentially being the second best player on the team and likely one of the only good players on the team last year. And when I talk about that, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because Devin Booker had a 1.6 VORP and Ayton had a 1.2 VORP. So by advanced metrics, DeAndre Ayton was just behind Devin Booker in how effective he was and how much winning he brought to the team last year. He was one of the three players on the Suns who had a positive box plus minus for the Suns last season. Very difficult to do on a team that's that terrible. The only three players were Rashawn Holmes, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. And he had almost the same defensive box plus minus as Mikhail Bridges did last season. That's all to say that he was good in a terrible situation last year, DeAndre Ayton. Now he's going to be brought back to this team in an excellent situation. Surrounded by playmakers, surrounded by more shooters than the Suns have had in four or five years, DeAndre Ayton is not necessarily the savior that this team needs to ensure that they're going to make the playoffs, but the idea that this team won't be a lot better with with him joining is kind of insane. Uh, I think that there is sort of a lot of pressure brought onto him coming back like this while the Suns have sort of been struggling the last few weeks, (laughs) and there should be. Uh, It is fair. I think that, that it is there. I don't think he's going to solve every problem. I think the defensive problems on this team are personnel-based, just period, and those are probably not going to be solved by the end of the season. More effort is not going to solve this. Better defensive players probably would. But he is going to slot in very, very, very nicely. He's going to draw a lot of gravity towards the rim. He's going to open up shooters, and I think he's going to score a lot easier than he had to last year. And not just that, I think that... Part of the areas that the Suns are not very good at scoring in is is a little bit away from the basket. There's not a lot of guys that can make those floaters or those short jumpers besides Devin Booker. And I think that that's an area where uh, defenses kind of force the Suns to shoot from. And DeAndre Ayton's going to dominate in those areas. And the way that this team is operating, getting the ball easily to Saric and to Kaminsky next to the rim... Those are automatic shots for DeAndre. And so just watching them lately, I think he's going to fit in very nicely. And I also think that the time that has been, uh, he's not been playing, the fact that he's been able to work with the team, work out with the team, watch the team, watch film, that should be great for him. He should come in understanding his place. Now, the speed of the game is going to be tough for him. It's going to take a little time. But I think he's going to come back and he's going to be pretty good pretty quickly. And I think the team is going to benefit a lot from him coming back. Let's be clear, the expectation for DeAndre Ayton should be high because of the way that he let the team down 
uh, and miss these 25 games as Suns fans have been tortured into watching guys like Luka Doncic and Trey Young and Jaron Jackson Jr. play for their respective teams. Um, so, you know, I understand Suns fans' frustrations and their high expectations, and I do think if DeAndre Ayton doesn't play the way he did in Game 1 consistently this season, uh, then there's going to be a lot of frustration online and, and a lot of people calling for his head. But he is such a dynamic offensive player, and what he does for your offense right now that the Suns have been missing. Right now, you talked earlier about how nice is it to have a player like Ricky Rubio in addition to a player like Devin Booker that can take a switch and break a big down off the dribble. What we didn't talk about there in that conversation is that every time you have a switch, ideally it's going two ways. You don't just have Devin Booker on a big guy uh, with the ability to break him down with his hesitation dribble. You also have DeAndre Ayton on a small guy uh, ready to abuse that matchup because he is already such a gifted player in the post, and that effect is only magnified against smaller players. Right now, the Suns haven't been able to take advantage uh, of that sort of duality of that play, because Dario Saric is not a post-up threat. Frank Kaminsky is not that much of a post-up threat. Aaron Baines has a hook shot. It's been better than I've expected it to be, but none of those guys at the end of the day, there's a reason that they're hanging out towards the three-point line. The offense with DeAndre Ayton, the amount of gravity that he brings uh, on the inside is going to be uh, absolutely huge for this offense. And what we get to see this year that we didn't get to see last year is actual competent shooters around him. Uh, You know, it's not going to be guys like Josh Jackson and Dragon Bender shooting 20% from three, spotting up on the three-point line, waiting for those kickout passes from DeAndre Ayton. Uh, granted, it might not be the most elite shooters in the league either, but now it's going to be competent guys like Dario Saric and Cam Johnson and uh, Kelly Oubre, who you're much more confident in. So DeAndre Ayton just adds one more element to your offense that is going to make the Suns offense run really, really smoothly and likely continue to be a top five, uh, maybe more like a top 10 offense in the NBA. The defense, I think, is more of an extended conversation that we can have, uh, you know, to what extent he actually improves that. But the offense is going to be great for sure. Do you think that so in the in the Sacramento Kings game, the one game that we got to see of DeAndre and so far this season, he was like a transcendental type of defensive player for a single game. Right. (laughs) That doesn't really matter. But I think there might be something to be said about the idea that the defense is sort of simplified in a way that might actually benefit him. First of all, there are better defensive players at the point of attack, which always helps a big man a little bit, right? So you have Ricky Rubio. Uh, Kelly Oubre is going to be around for more than half the season. I think there's a reason to be confident that Kelly Oubre helped DeAndre Ayton towards the end of last season, where DeAndre Ayton looked a little bit better. Mikael Bridges, of course, has earned some more minutes recently, and uh, they just look a little better defensively in general with Devin Booker putting up a little more effort, still having his Devin Booker struggles, especially if he's a little distracted. But uh, do you think that the defense, the scheme, will help him? Because it, it looked, it looked mm-hmm. good against mm-hmm. the Kings, and I just wonder what yeah. you think if that's going to help. Yeah, so I've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast this year now, but just kind of to rehash it, the Suns uh, started the season in a lot of drop pick-and-roll coverage because that's what a guy like Aaron Baines, who's a little more slow and lumbering, is good at. Um, And and that kind of plays into that whole um, pre-rotation of the nail defender and having your guards and, and your wings pack the paint. But really what the center does in that scheme is, uh, very simply, protect the rim, 
don't foul to the best of your ability. I know that's a hard thing in the NBA these days, but protect the rim, don't foul, and box out and grab the defensive rebound. I think that's a great thing for DeAndre Ayton to do. Part of the Suns' regression defensively in the past month or so has been Frank Kaminsky and Dario Saric at the center position, and even Shek Diallo just can't do that. So Monty has switched it up. He's tried to go with other approaches, get those guys uh, a little bit out um, more towards the perimeter, honestly, trapping and, and hedging picks. And it just hasn't worked because those guys don't have the foot speed to keep up with guards. But similarly, they don't have the length to contest shots at the rim. Having DeAndre Ayton and Aaron Baines healthy at the same time uh, for the first time all season since that Sacramento game is going to be so huge because now for the first time, I think the Suns can really play that consistent scheme of drop coverage for 48 minutes. And I could be wrong. I have no idea what Monty is thinking. Maybe they're not going to do that. Um, but I think that would be a pretty good bet for what they should do. Trust their guards to go for deflections out on the perimeter, play with energy, um, have additional defenders rotate to try and deny penetration in and around that elbow and nail area and then contest out hard on shooters. Uh, and then for DeAndre Ayton and Aaron Baines, just simplify it to the point where they know all they need to do is communicate on the back end, which is a thing where I think DeAndre has a lot to learn from a guy like Baines um, and grab the rebounds and contest shots at the rim. I expect him to... Here's what I want him to look like to, to to start and when he comes back here. I want him to be comfortable with contact. That was a big complaint from me last season. I just want him to not shy away from contact defensively. I actually don't really mind. I think a lot of people were sort of frustrated by his shying away from contact offensively, but as long as he can remain incredibly efficient offensively, that doesn't bother me at all. As I just don't want him to shy away from it defensively and I think there is an element of that being contagious this team takes a lot of charges uh, we've talked about it online a little bit we talked about it on the podcast a little bit that I think comes down from Aaron Baines and Ricky Rubio two guys who are really smart with taking charges for this team and I think that sacri- sacrificing your body uh, when you see when you see your teammates doing that you don't want to be the guy that shies away from that so I think that that's going to help him a little bit there so I want him to not shy away from contact remain efficient offensively punish the switches he's got to punish those switches and I want him to be there's no real excuse for him to have bad conditioning coming back at this point of the season he's had training camp but now he's had an extra few months uh, to get in really good shape. <laughs> So here's the thing. I think that for the first few games of him coming back, it's going to take some getting used to. The speed of the game is different. There's no way to simulate an NBA game. You can try your best in practice, but it just does not work. It's different in an NBA game when guys are fighting for their careers. They're fighting for wins. They're fighting for the playoffs. So maybe he will be a little bit tired at first, but I think very quickly I would like to see him uh, be up to speed conditioning-wise and be able to handle that 32, 33, 34 minutes, hopefully, uh, that we can get out of a player that should be as good as him. Are there any specific things that you're looking for from DeAndre now that he's coming back? Uh, what side of the ball are we talking? Either either way, just those are my expectations. That's what I want to see from him right away and very quickly as far as the conditioning side. But to either right. side of the ball, the things so- that you want to see. Conditioning, I think, goes without saying. That's a big thing for me, too. Um, Schematically, I I guess I basically said what I want from him defensively. I want him to protect the rim because that's where he struggled last year. And and I want to see not just blocks. Um, You know, he doesn't have to average two blocks a game, but he just needs to give consistent effort. There were a lot of plays that he took off last year for whatever reason on that side of the ball. Um, And I that just doesn't fly anymore. 
on offense, um, I want to see a little bit more versatility. I, I want him to try and shoot that three. I don't want him to do it as much as Aaron Baines because that brings away uh, it brings him away from a lot of the stuff that he's super good at, which I was just talking about about being a post player and playmaking out of that um, high post and elbow area. But I think it would be nice if DeAndre Ayton takes one or two threes per game. Yeah, so that's that's basically all I expect out of him. I don't. I think DeAndre Ayton, to be clear, could average. He averaged sixteen and ten last year, right? I think he could very easily average. 17 and 11 or something for the rest of the season and yet look so much better like look right. twice as good if that right. makes sense absolutely if he, if he protects the rim hits a three at like 30 to 35 percent you know just one per game or something like that uh, and just continues to be good at all the things that he was already good at he could have basically the same stat line he doesn't have to dominate you know, a lot of people really overstate it with DeAndre and They expect him to go out there and score 25 or 30 points. The truth is, with the way the Suns' offense is working right now, we don't need him to do that. We just need him to give more consistent effort on defense uh, and kind of make that his priority. Uh, and then the offensive touches will come as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's get to Player of the Week. Enjoy this royalty-free music. Player of the week time, player of the week time, Mike and Sam will choose the player of the week time, player of the week time, player of the week time. Yeah, come on, Mike <laughs> and Sam. Choose the player of the week, man. I didn't know that you uh, recruited a new artist from Fiverr. Who is who who are we highlighting this week? Yeah, yeah, Ben. Uh, Thick Boy. Shout out to Thick Boy. <laughs> Created the song for us on Twitter. Uh, ben, your $12 check is in the mail. But uh, if any of you would like to create a Player of the Week song, feel free to, just the same way Ben Watson did on Twitter, one of our uh, favorite fans here, Thick Boys, uh, been featured on the podcast more than once. Uh, and he created a song for us, so shout out to him. If you'd like to create a Player of the Week song, feel free to make it however you want. Cover the one we have. Cover the one that Ben just wrote. Write your own, whatever style you want. Send it not to a cappella. <laughs> not any acapella. style. Not, but there has to be instrumentation. That's yeah, my if rule. It, if it's a cappella, <laughs> it better be good. <laughs> you know okay, what I mean? you know what? A cappella is fine, but it has to be your entire a cappella troupe. There needs has to be to at it. least three part harmonies if it's yes. a cappella. <laughs> Let's just say that. Uh, so, player of the week, Sam. Uh, you, I'll let you go first on this one. Go ahead and go. Um, Ricky Rubio. We already talked about him. I feel like we don't have to talk to him about him a ton more. Um, but look, we only had two games this week. Ricky Rubio in those two games averaged 23 and a half points, 10 and a half assists. He shot 49% from the field. Uh, that's really fucking good. I won't go into his three point shooting because it's not that good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I thought this he doesn't was shoot a lot though. No, he doesn't. And look, we know what he is, right? He, he's just it was nice to see a week out of him where he took that initiative offensively uh, because of the way that Devin Booker wasn't fully there. Um, literally wasn't there last game, but also wasn't <laughs> fully there the game before. Memphis, I thought yeah. what was interesting, though, is I pulled up a comparison between, <laughs> and this is this is mostly joking, but Ricky Rubio versus Steve Nash at age 29. If you look at the stat line, age 29 for Steve Nash was the 2003-2004 season. It was his last season in Dallas. It was after he was already an established all-star caliber player, but he wasn't back in his second stint with Phoenix yet. His first MVP year would be his age 30 season. 
Ricky Rubio this season is averaging 14 points, four and a half rebounds, and nine and a half assists. Steve Nash, at the same age, was averaging 14 and a half points, three rebounds, and nine assists. Almost virtually <laughs> identical numbers. Now, of course, you get into the shooting splits and it starts to look a lot uglier. Uh, but, you know, Rubio is a better defender. He's a much better defender. We know that. Uh, he has a better assist to turnover ratio right now than Steve Nash did at that time. And in fact, if he keeps going the way on the current trajectory he's on, Ricky Rubio is going to finish this season with one of the best assist to turnover ratios of any starting point guard in the modern NBA era, including Steve Nash. That is how godly he has been at that aspect of basketball this season. So true, he can't shoot threes. Obviously, I'm not saying he's he's has the same impact as an MVP player like Nash, but I did think it was interesting. Uh, you know, it just makes you look twice when you do a direct comparison of those two guys and kind of look at their stat lines side by side. It's pretty jarring. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he was so good in the last few games. I think that the Spurs game was clearly the best game he's played, uh, for the Suns so far. And, uh, by necessity, uh, we needed him to be the best player he could be in that game. Uh, because no Devin Booker, no Deandre Ayton, uh, still hobbled Aaron Baines. I think Aaron Baines has been good since he came back. The shots, not quite there for Aaron Baines, and I think when you get kneed in the ribs a few times, it makes sense that your three-pointer is going to suffer a little bit until you feel right. Uh, So Ricky Rubio was clearly the best player on the team uh, for that stretch, and uh, shout out to him. I think it's it's such a nice thing to have for him. Not only is he filling a, a void for the Suns, and for Suns fans especially, that's been so massive for the last few years, he's having the best season likely of his career so far. Uh, so it's really nice to see Ricky Rubio thriving for the Phoenix Suns. My player of the week is a, a it was a pretty easy one, I think, for me this week. It's Frank Kaminsky. Yeah. Frank Kaminsky gets a lot of hate. Fuck uh, you, Max McCauley. <laughs> Frank Kaminsky gets a lot of hate. We're friends with Max. Nobody start drama. Uh, <laughs> uh, Frank Kaminsky gets a lot of hate. My theory, if you've listened to to the podcast a while my theory is because he has a funny face he gets more hate than maybe he deserves he averaged 17 4 and 3 on 60 percent field goal shooting and 53 percent three-point shooting over the last three games there was a time sam think back it feels forever ago there was a time to start the season where frank kaminsky was a backup player and he was a difference maker for the suns a legitimate difference maker He came off the bench and he was scoring maybe 13 points, had six or seven rebounds, and it was clear that he was handling uh, offense or defense from uh, defensive players from the bench. He he was legitimately handling them at the position that he was in. That feels like forever ago. He struggled as a starter. He's not really meant for that role in any way. But the fact that he's hitting his stride right now, he's playing this well right now is really kind of perfect because if he goes to the bench, he goes back to the bench and he continues to play at this level, he's going to dominate benches again and he can easily shoot over opposing power forwards and if he can get that pump pump fake and rumble to the rim the way he likes to do, he's long enough to get that shot up over opposing power forwards on the bench <laughs> as well. And I think that it will be a nice situation if he continues to play this well coming I'm, off the bench. So I I'm hope laughing. he does. I'm laughing because do you remember that play yesterday? He kind of picked up his dribble on a rumble to the rim, as as you like to call it. Picked up his dribble a little bit too early and almost 
couldn't make it to the rim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, he just ever so barely made it. You know, his his foot was on the way back down, was about to touch the floor and get mm-hmm. him called probably for, for a travel, but he was able to just barely get there with his T-Rex arms. Yeah. Um, Frank is a tough guy to watch. You know, I understand people not liking Frank Kaminsky. It makes sense for a lot of reasons. But yeah, we go back to the conversation we've had before where he was never meant to be this team's starting center. He's not built for it. And I think as a power forward, he will do a lot better. Uh, And he'll be perfect for the role right now, Um, just like you said. In a 15 to 20 minute per game role for this team, uh, I think Frank Kaminsky can really flourish. He can be a regular Davis Bertans Hopefully, if he keeps up this level of three-point shooting, like you said, 53% in his recent games. Uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm excited to get Frank back on the bench because I think, you know, it wouldn't be the proper Frank Kaminsky experience if we were not having the sorts of conversations that we're having right now. This is exactly what Richie Randall, who covers the Hornets, right. came on and told us in the offseason. He said, some weeks you're going to hate this guy and other weeks he's going to look like your third best player. And that really has been true uh, with Frank Kaminsky so far. So it's just kind of funny. We we had to expect this to some extent. Yeah, and I think for Frank, the most important thing is the three-point shot. It's it's an obvious thing for him, especially if he continues to play power forward. Like if he goes back to that power forward role, if he continues to hit that three-point shot at the level that he's hitting it at, he can play next to Baines, he can play next to Aiton, and he just has to spread the floor. And that's important to him. I, I think we talked about it a little bit. When we started the season, I, I believed that the center position, the backup center position, was kind of where he was meant to be. The more I've watched him, the more I've been convinced that the power forward role, especially next to Baines, I think the, the, the reason the power forward role makes the most sense for him now is that fit next to Baines. Uh, you know, Baines can kind of do a lot that a power forward can do now that he can hit that three. Uh, so that gives a lot of space for either one of those guys. You know, the Suns have that type of offense where only one guy is rolling to the paint at a time. And with Baines on the floor, that can be Frank and it could be Baines. It could be either one of them. And that's nice to have. And and ideally, it's more like someone like Devin Booker or Kelly Oubre uh, or now Mikhail Bridges. Now that he learned how to cut, it could be any one of those guys. So it's going to be great. I think if he continues to play at this level and goes back to the bench, we'll see how well he does. I think his confidence will go back up pretty high if he if he hits 53% of his threes and then goes back to the bench. So We'll see how that goes. We only have one more game before he's back to the bench, uh, hopefully for good, uh, for Frank Kaminsky. Um, But let's go to, so I, on Twitter, I posted a tweet asking what people would like to hear us talk about on this podcast. I grabbed a couple of them. we've done none of it so far. We've done none of it so far. We saved it to the end here. Um, I mean, I think we talked about some of the things incidentally. People want (laughs) to know about DeAndre Ayton. We had to talk about DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, that one was obvious. We had to do player of the week because like that's our thing now. Exactly. Um, and people and people want to hear about the Spurs game yesterday because it's the most recent game. So we took care of the basics first. Now we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty that you guys uh, asked about. Yep. So this is kind of a impromptu mini mailbag from Twitter. So thank you to everyone who asked us questions. I apologize to anyone who asked us after we recorded this. It's possible that we just missed it here. Um, let's go through a couple of them, see how quickly we can get through them and, and answer these questions here. Um, this first one's from uh, good old Squats Magoo, who I interviewed on the streets out in front of the arena in the infamous Robert Sarfer protest of 2018. Uh, his name is Brendan. He asked us on Twitter, I want to know what we're flipping Tyler Johnson for uh, because he's unplayable at this point. Tyler, Tyler, Tyler Johnson. He, he, he had a cameo <laughs> in the Spurs game. He played yeah, for the first did. time in a while in the Spurs yeah. game, and he was awful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's... <laughs> 
Can he I start was. on this one? Yeah. He was awful. Go ahead. He was awful. Uh, Tyler Johnson has no trade value right now, um, Brandon. So the answer is nothing. Unless it's pure salary cap relief for some other team as part of like a bigger deal uh, where you trade Tyler Johnson and a bunch of other assets to get like a Kevin yes. Love or, or yes. a big player. Sure, that works. Tyler Johnson by himself has no value. That does not mean that I personally am totally off the Tyler Johnson wagon. I think, because what I've always liked, so the stats here, in the last 10 games, Tyler Johnson is shooting 31% from the field. He's shooting 20% from deep. He has been awful. And if there's any player that you can look at on this roster right now and say that player has underperformed, it's Tyler Johnson, uh, bar none. It's absolutely him. And, you know, it's just important to point that out. That being said, the thing I've always liked about Tyler Johnson is that he has, in addition to his ability to penetrate a little bit and hit the pull-up mid-range shot, um, he's a good shooter in theory. He hasn't shown it, but he is a good shooter in theory, and he has a very lightning-quick release, which is kind of the thing that allows him to play combo guard in the first place and act as a spot-up shooting guard next to a guy like Devin Booker. Like Tyler Johnson is not a great playmaker. We know that. He's not even a good playmaker right now. Um, but despite being more of a point guard size, last season we saw him in spurts be able to play next to Devin Booker, and Devin Booker was kind of the point guard in those lineups, and Tyler Johnson was a spot-up shooter. We haven't seen it right now, and it's hard with this current rotation that the Suns have because they have so many backup guards that if you play poorly, there's another guy waiting right there to take your minutes. I yeah. kind of think that we're just—it's unfortunate timing for Tyler Johnson, who might just so happen to be— uh, be in the worst shooting slump of his life. And it's just happening at the worst time because it's led to Monty Williams taking away all of his minutes. It's led to a situation where now he only gets to play once every five or six games, which kind of only compounds on the pressure being placed on him whenever he's put into a game and probably only negatively affects his confidence even more and leads to even more poor performances like we saw last night against San Antonio. I think Tyler Johnson is still a decent NBA player. I have a very, very hard time believing that uh, he should just rot on the bench for the rest of the season and that the Suns shouldn't trade him. And then uh, when his contract expires, you know, he won't be able to find another job in the NBA uh, this summer. I have a very hard time believing that that is actually what happened to him because players don't usually players his age who are like 27 yes. years old. Don't just lose all of their talent suddenly That's, like I, that. That I think is a big point. If you just looked at Tyler Johnson's averages year by year and you got to 2019-2020 you would think man he must have turned like 35 this year you would think he's 27 he, you would think either he had a incredibly traumatic injury he just turned 35 or he got addicted to crack and tried to make a comeback <laughs> like Lamar Odom and like something like that or like you know a Hito Turkoglu type thing where he was on uh, drugs and then was no longer on drugs and tried to make a comeback and looked really bad. But that none of that stuff, as far as I know, applies to Tyler Johnson. <laughs> this this is a decent player. I mean, I don't know what he was doing in Miami, but as far as I know, this is a decent player. Yeah. And it just so happens that if you play poorly as the backup point guard on this specific team, Ty Jerome, Javon Carter, uh, who else? Elia Kobo. <laughs> forgetting yeah. the names now Elliot Kobo they're all waiting right there but Tyler Johnson uh you can't get any value out of him right now because his value is at an all-time low that doesn't mean he's complete garbage and I think maybe he'll get more chances throughout the season and maybe we're gonna see that eventually 
Yeah, and I think you got into a little bit of our next question there, which I'll, I'll read out in just a second. But just my thoughts quickly on trading. Uh, as Tyler Johnson specific to trading, uh, I just don't think it's worth really trading him right now as far as what you can get back because I think you're right that he has no trade value on the court, Sam. That's true. But I, th- I don't think that any, any team that would be willing to trade for Tyler Johnson is trading for Tyler Johnson. They're trading for his contract. They're trading for the ability to have a lot of cap space next year and not pay an overpaid player uh, for the next few years. And what that means is the Suns would likely be trading for an overpaid player that would be on the books for the next few years. Like, for example, OKC is not going to trade Danilo Gallinari for Tyler Johnson unless the Suns give up a lot more. Um, you know, that, that goes with the same with Kevin Love. I think the only real option that would make it kind of worth it is potentially Blake Griffin. If the Detroit Pistons have finally, uh, made themselves willing to just fully bottom out. And in, in that case, maybe you could make a play at Blake Griffin, but then you'd be giving up other things as well. That that's when some of the wings are uh, on the table or maybe, uh, maybe Ty Jerome or, or some young players that could potentially benefit the uh, Detroit Pistons in the future. And that's, you know, that probably would be worth it. But I don't know that that conversation has started yet. And it's possible we'll be talking about it two months from now. But I don't think there's any reason to trade him just yet. There's a little bit of the next question, I think, that you got into there, Sam, that I want to spend even a little more time on here. And this is about the backup point guard minutes. This was asked by uh, Lilani, one of our followers, Thick Boy, who's who's Ben Watson on Twitter, asked about (laughs) this as well. And uh, someone named D-Bands on Twitter said, uh, more specifically, our thoughts on Akobo losing his minutes after being pretty solid prior to Ty Jerome's return and asked if he should be getting some of those minutes out there. The backup point guard minutes, the, the, the gist of all of these questions are that the backup point guard minutes are all over the place. <laughs> we never mess. know who's playing from game to it's game. It's a mess right and, now. And I actually, I, I feel like in a vacuum, if someone were to tell me, the coach of the Phoenix Suns is not playing a consistent backup point guard. You never know who's playing game to game. I would say, what? That's a disaster. At this point, watching the way each player has played, it almost makes sense. And I don't fully understand why he's choosing what player uh, week to week. And I think we talked about it last week that that's just something I don't think that we're ever going to know. But I think more importantly for us, you and I, Sam, we should talk about who we think should be getting those minutes. And for me, I am conflicted because... There is an argument to be made that Elia Kobo has been playing the best of all of them recently. And that means that likely, just from that standpoint, maybe he should be getting those minutes. But at the same time, if you truly believe that Ty Jerome can be that backup point guard for the future, is it more beneficial to to really develop him as much as possible? And I think the third issue is, I actually might be, having said both of those things about both of those two guys, I actually might be back on the Javon Carter train a little bit. Whoa. And and here's okay. why. Uh, I truly believe that effort on defense is contagious, and I've said it time and time again on this podcast, and I think if you have someone like Javon Carter at the point of attack following a guy around up and down the court and really just hounding a ball handler, making him uncomfortable, that is something that's contagious. That makes other guys play harder on defense as well. I truly, truly, truly believe that, even though there's no way to quantify that. I just, I've played basketball before. You've played basketball before. You know that that happens. You guys can inspire other guys on the court. And I think that maybe Javon Carter might be that guy. And, and you know, I don't think it's insane to say that maybe Javon Carter, uh, the team was playing better defense when Javon Carter was on the floor as a whole. 
and if look, here's the real truth. If they're all going to be bad offensively, <laughs> you know what I mean? If every single one of them is not going to be an excellent offensive player, <laughs> why not put the best defensive guy on the floor and actually get something um, out of him? Right, um, you, so yeah. I'm conflicted you, though. I'm not fully bought in on any of those guys, and neither, I understand why why he's like that. So, what do you think? <laughs> I tried to quantify it, so I looked up the net ratings because I feel like we're at the point in the season now where we can look at net ratings, and it's not like an evil thing to do. Um, so, the Suns are playing seven points per 100 possessions better with Elliot Kobo on the floor than when he's off the floor. He is the best of those four. Um, that's one of the best plus net rating swings of anyone on the roster um seven additional points with Elliot Kobo with Javon Carter it's plus two points with uh Tyler Johnson they are playing 18 points worse which is really really bad and then with finally with Ty Jerome now granted this is a small sample size Ty Jerome has only played like 100 minutes um but it's 22 points worse with Ty Jerome on the court than with him off yeah. And I think that meets the eye test. I think Ty yeah, Jerome... I agree. As a, I think it's one thing to say Ty Jerome's going to be good one day and he deserves time to develop. But I think if we're just being honest with ourselves, Ty Jerome has looked very bad for I most agree. of the time he's been yeah. on a basketball court. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to win games, here's the thing. The numbers right now say it's Elliot Kobo. My eyes don't necessarily say it's Elliot Kobo. And I don't know what the roadblock is there, what the obstacle is, because I'm looking at the numbers right now. I think it's absurd how Elia Kobo has 39 assists to four turnovers this season, almost a 10.0 assist to turnover ratio, which is legendary. It's amazing. It's a small sample size, but it's amazing. And yet usually, you know, I think about players and I think sometimes if I hear a player's name, the first thing to pop in my head is one or two of their highlight plays of that season. Elia Kobo has 39 assists this season, and I don't know if I could mentally recall a single one. He is such... <laughs> He is such an unspectacular player in every facet of his game because he's this guy who was brought in as a shooting prospect, and he actually is shooting better this year. Uh, but but just none of the offense has come together. And yet the advanced stats say that the Suns are playing the best with Elia Copo on the floor right now. So to be honest, you know, that's probably the guy I would ride for now and just try to figure out uh, to what extent you can develop him and, and to see if you can suss out what ceiling is there. Because I really don't know what we have with Elliot Copa right now. One of the things that I was uh, really watching from him yesterday against the Spurs was that I think he looks a lot more aggressive this year. And maybe part of that comes from in yesterday's game, he knew that he was playing uh, in a game where Devin Booker wasn't there and Kelly Oubre again was struggling, so he had to be more aggressive. But he looks stronger. I think he's added muscle to his frame. Uh, and he looks like a guy who's more willing to go in uh, and be aggressive and drive to the basket. That doesn't mean that he's efficient at doing any of those things. And we saw yesterday he got blocked at the rim a couple of times because he just doesn't have uh, enough finesse to actually finish over NBA uh, defenders yet. So I I just don't know what we have with Ellie. Like, theoretically, the numbers say he's been the least bad of a bunch of bad options so far. I think that the, those numbers are more indicative of uh, the times that he's been deployed, uh, you know, onto the onto the floor, those are almost more indicative of the decisions that Monty Williams has made to get them on the floor at the right time, and he's and he's capitalized on that to his credit. And I think if you just from a number standpoint, it's absolutely Elio Kobo. He's the one that deserves it the most. Um, but but I just wonder what that's gonna sh- how that's gonna shake out because I, I actually agree. I think Ty Jerome just doesn't look ready yet. Um, and I think part of that is I don't think he looks fully in shape yet as well. He's not really playing at the right speed. He's still playing at college speed. Maybe that's a result of playing on the slowest 
team in the NCAA uh, for his time in college, but he doesn't look ready yet. So we'll see how that shakes out. That's going to be a conversation going forward. And I think if the Suns do end up making a trade, um, that might be it. And actually, that goes to the next question we got, which is from someone named Guru on Twitter who said, what position needs upgrading the most when DeAndre Ayton comes back? He also asked, is there something behind the Suns' poor three-point shooting in the last few games? Um, said that they would have been wins. Let's talk about that first question first. What position needs upgrading the most? It's the one that we just spent a few minutes talking about. We need another backup playmaker, in my opinion, an offensive creator. I think someone out there uh, that is available uh, to be traded for would be such a perfect player on this team. The Suns will not get him because he wants to go to a contender, but it's Andre Iguodala. Andre Iguodala has not played at all this season. He's on the Memphis roster technically, but they're just holding on to him to wait for a contender to trade for him. But if he was available in a nor- in a normal sense, how perfect would he be on this oh, team? Wow. He could come in and help off the bench, and he could be a playmaker off the off the bench as well. You, uh, could, just, uh, you could swap Tyler Johnson's contract for him. It's perfect, yeah, actually. It, yeah, it really is. And you know, and, and he's is he a free agent after this year? Does it? Do, do you yeah, see that? He is a, yeah, he is a free agent. And let's be real: is he getting another NBA deal after this year? Who knows? He might we'll retire. See. That's. I don't want to bring up too much more about Tyler Johnson. What do you think Tyler Johnson gets this summer in free agency if he doesn't? If things keep going the way they have been going, no. If he, if things keep going the way they have been going, he gets he gets the minimum. Yeah, like he has to play his way back into the league after being the guy that signed that nineteen million dollar a year deal. And he'd get an opportunity in insane. Memphis. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, before we give this idea any more credence, it's like you just said, Iggy's not. We're not a contender, so Iggy's not coming to us. He doesn't want to. Yeah, he 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 just wouldn't want to play here. I think, and and you know, it's unfortunate because man, he would be great. Uh, he would really, really be great uh, on this team, and he could he could play those closing minutes. He could be the obvious six man. He could essentially be the point guard off the bench. Uh, but yeah, it won't won't happen. And I think for the second question, if if there's something behind the poor three point shooting, uh, no, I don't I don't think there is. I think it's just the ebb and flow of the games. A, a lot of those shots were wide open, and the Suns continue to 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 create wide open three point attempts. And sometimes they go in, sometimes they don't, and I think that's frustrating. But it's just the way it is. But, I uh, do, do think, think there is something there. Um, the only thing that's there, it's it's the ebb and flow of the game, like you said. You're gonna have nights when you hit shots and nights when you don't hit shots. Um, but I think Suns fans have gone a little bit astray this season in thinking that the Suns are now some elite three-point shooting team just because we're comparing it to previous seasons where they were a god-awful shooting team. And the truth is they're not... Like, we we improved uh, shooters across the board on this roster this summer, but we didn't bring in many elite guys. Cam Johnson is about the only... If you just not just in terms of the percentages, but also in looking at form and shot mechanics, I only see one. Okay, I see two elite shooters on this team: Devin Booker, obviously, and Cam Johnson being the other one. Um, but a guy like Dario Saric, uh, you know, Dario Saric hits threes, but he's a career thirty-five percent three-point shooter. He's not an elite sniper like a Davis Berton. Sorry to keep bringing that guy up week after week, but it's just the first power <laughs> forward I think of right now. The same is true of Frank Kaminsky. The same is uh, true of Aaron Baines, honestly, who started to come down to earth. So what we've actually seen is the Suns are amazing at creating wide open threes, but they're only shooting 36% as a team on wide open threes. That might not sound that bad, uh, but it's 25th in the NBA. There are a few teams in the NBA that are consistently shooting 41-42% as a team on wide open threes. And if the Suns were at that level, they would be maybe the number one or number two offense in the NBA. But they're just not 
at that level with the personnel that they have. They absolutely upgraded over last season, uh, but they're not going to blow anyone away with their three-point shooting. They're not the Warriors with Steph and Clay. That's just not who they are. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, I don't know. It's it's it can be frustrating to watch at times to continually miss uh, significant numbers of wide open threes. But I think that the encouraging fact is that they're continuing to create wide open threes. And uh, you know maybe it's credit to the defenses for giving it to certain guys. But these are guys uh, basically everyone on the team can hit three pointers. Uh, maybe except for Ricky Rubio on a regular basis. But um, you know, I think credit to them for, for getting those open shots in general, but let's move on to the next one. This one's from, forgive me, Michael, but it's Michael Radzizewski, I think, or do you have a theory on how this is pronounced? Uh, Sam? <laughs> I'm no, I'm no <laughs> expert with Polish names. I want to say Radzizewski. Yes. Um, let's say that. Correct us, correct us if we're wrong, please. <laughs> what has changed from the first five games? We could dominate, make a large lead and outscore opponents easily. Personnel did not change. What did change? Um, Sam, do you want to go first on this one? Oh, well, what changed is, I actually kind of touched on it earlier. The personnel kind of changed, first of all, in the sense that Baines went out for a while and Ricky Rubio went out for a few games. But specifically when Baines went out and now even that he's back, but he's not back in the starting lineup, the defensive scheme that they employed that made them successful collapsed. That's the biggest thing is that the defense has continued to regress game after game with Frank Kaminsky uh, as a starting center. And it's not Frank's fault, but that's just the way it is. So I would say that it's mostly a defensive scheme thing. Also, just some coming back down to earth. You know, like, even now that Baines is back, we couldn't expect him to shoot 50% from three forever. So so little things like that, too. Yeah, I think that uh, you can only be the surprise team for so long, you know? Uh, at a certain point, teams take you a little more seriously. Maybe they watch a little bit more film. They pay a little bit more attention to the schemes that you are uh, out there employing, and they respond better. And I think that's part of it. Uh, the, you know, there's just better teams out there are paying more attention to the signs and what they do, um, and and that's a big part. But I think one of the main things is that Aaron Baines has missed quite a few games. I think that's a big difference. He's obviously not the savior. He only plays 20-something minutes a game. You know, he can't really sustain any high uh, number of minutes. But during the stretch where the Suns were really good, uh, a lot of that credit goes to Aaron Baines. So, you know, when he's hurt, uh, it makes it really difficult. And and as we talked about, guys are playing sort of out of position and, and out of their proper depth in the lineup, and, and that can be difficult. So, you know, personnel has changed, just like you said. And I also think that, uh, you know, working someone like Ty Jerome back into the lineup can can hurt the Suns in the short term. Uh, it potentially can help dramatically in the long term, uh, but in the short term, it's going to hurt you in the in the wins and losses column. Um, last one that we have here from Talking Suns Well Online on Twitter. He says, uh, "Talk about Cam Johnson making an All Rookie Team just like Josh Jackson did." Uh, making an all-rookie team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean shit, but <laughs> we could talk about it. Um, do you want to yeah. go? You start with this one. I mean, I think it's possible. Um, what The first thing I did when uh, when I saw this question, I said, well, did Landry did Landry Shamit make one last year? That was my first thought. And I looked it up, and Landry Shamit did make the all-rookie team, the second team, last year. And if I think if a guy like Landry Shamit can make it, when, when he's essentially... He can do a few things, right? But he's a shooter. He's he's Cam Johnson. He's just a smaller Cam Johnson. And if he can make the team, then I think he I think uh, Cameron Johnson can. 
Um, the, the one thing I'll say is I don't give a shit about this at all. <laughs> never, <laughs> never when I look up players do I think, did they make the all-rookie team? I just don't really care. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, you know, uh, Josh Jackson did. Uh, we looked it up, Sam and I, before the podcast. Marquise Chris did as well. It's like, how much does it really, really, really matter in the long run? What do you think? Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, I, I guess, first of all, I can't really answer this question for you right now. Like, I guess this is something we'll just have to look at uh, 60 or 70 games into the season. Right now, it looks like he could make an all-rookie team. The stats say, and the funny thing about the all-rookie team, so first of all, here's what I think people forget about the all-rookie teams is they're positionless, so it really doesn't matter. It's just the top 10 best rookies uh, in any sort of designation that you want. Cam Johnson ranks 11th in points per game. Uh, He ranks 15th in rebounds per game. But then you get to some of the advanced stats, uh, and actually he ranks 7th in win shares. That says that he might be in it. He ranks 5th in VORP. Which also says that, you know, maybe he deserves to, to win a spot. So the problem is when people vote for the all-rookie teams, when the media votes for this award in particular, I don't think they give a shit about advanced stats. The thing that hurts Cam Johnson, you're right, Landry Shamit did make the team last year, and so Cam has a chance. But rookies is um, one of the things where the media just wants to see a guy who put up 17 points stats. per game. Yeah. Yes. If, you, if you're R.J. Barrett, and I'm not convinced R.J. Barrett is any good. He's he's not awful. I'm not convinced R.J. Barrett is not awful is what I mean to say. Um, and he's But he's putting up like 15 points and five assists per game on a really, really bad Knicks team. He's going to get a spot on the all-rookie roster because traditionally that's how it works. That's how Marquise Chris got onto the team. That's how Josh Jackson got onto the team. Josh Jackson, by advanced stats, had a god-awful rookie year. And we as Suns fans <laughs> tried to defend him against that. Uh, but we can look back now with the benefit of the hindsight and say that maybe there was something to that that we should have taken a closer look at. Cam Johnson is kind of the opposite sort of prospect. He's not getting the high usage. He's not getting 30 minutes per game, at least not until, you know, I guess if there were an injury, uh, knock on wood that that doesn't happen. But I guess he's otherwise not going to play a very large amount of minutes. So he has to do the most that he possibly can in 20 to 25 minutes per game, and he'll have good advanced stats and good shooting percentages as a result, but he might just not have the raw numbers to actually make the team. We'll, we'll have to see. Yep, uh, yep. I, like I said, I don't, I don't really care. I, I think that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate that, that Suns fans do, do care. There are Suns fans that do care out there. I just don't, I think that Cam Johnson is already sort of being left out in the narrative about the, uh, uh, the rookies in general. And I think part of that is because he he's taken outside of the top 10. So I think the narrative forming is that the top 10 is so far underwhelming outside of John Morant, who's been really, really good. I've been surprised Brandon at how good Clark, John Morant. I hate, I, I hate to say it. I don't hate to say it. Actually. I love that guy. Brandon Clark's looked really good. Oh yeah, absolutely. He looks, he looks incredible, but he's outside of the top 10. And I think, oh, that, yeah, yeah. So, so that narrative just, he, pushes him out a little bit if he was number 10 they would say the top 10 has been underwhelming except for john morant and cameron johnson who's been performing exactly as advertised and i think that's the point about cameron johnson he's performing exactly as advertised doesn't make a lot of mistakes and makes a ton of threes uh that's pretty that's a pretty valuable player in today's nba so uh you know i i think that if anything the suns team has been sort of justified in picking him where they did could they have picked a potential better player in, say, Brandon Clark, who has been 
you know, by all advanced metrics, the probably the second best rookie, if not the best rookie so far. Yeah, potentially. But does that make it a disappointing pick? No, I think there's consistently guys who are picked late that probably should have been picked higher, and that doesn't make every single pick above them a terrible pick. Cameron Johnson's been good, and I'm confident in that. And I'm confident he will continue to be good going forward. He also seems like a guy that's that's capable of improving now that his job is to play basketball. So uh, I'm excited to watch him grow. And I don't think he's the type of player, even though he's older, that will not improve. He will improve. You know, I think it's um, just my last note on this. I quickly counted it up. There's obviously a lot of rookies who haven't played a lot of minutes yet. But among the guys who have played minutes, only six rookies from this class and this shouldn't be that surprising because they're young, but only six players from this class have a positive VORP right now, a value of a replacement player, and 18 have a negative VORP. And many of those who have a negative VORP have a very, very, very negative VORP, like Cam Reddish and Darius Garland look awful right now by that advanced metric. But of those six guys that are in the positives, Cam Johnson is one of them, um, along with, uh, let's see, like PJ Washington and Brandon Clark, Jackson Hayes, and John Morant, basically, guys like that. So... Again, advanced stats wise, he's doing very well. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm yeah. It's nice to to watch him. It you know there was some there's been some minutes I've been keeping track of the minutes that Kelly Oubre, Mikhail Bridges, and Cameron Johnson have shared the court together. I'm very fascinated with those minutes, uh, and so far so good. It's got a net rating of nine point one, I believe. They've played about sixty sixty five minutes. Not not a lot of time on the court together, but I think it's all it's been positive. Um, you know, it's got, I think if the offensive rating is 101, the defensive rating is about 92. That's a good team. If those guys continue to play really well together, that's pretty exciting. I think it's a very versatile group of wings, you know, two very good defenders, one lights out shooter and uh, two guys who have gotten a lot better at cutting. It's interesting because it's, you know, the only real way to put Devin Booker on that <laughs> with those three guys is to play him at point guard. And then, you know, if you put DeAndre Ayton at center, that's a pretty damn interesting lineup. I really hope that Monty Williams is, is at least considering uh, playing with that a little bit. Let's preview a little bit the games coming up this week. We talked about it a little bit. It's four games this week, two back-to-backs, Monday, Tuesday, then Friday, Saturday. The back-to-backs are Portland, home, and then Clippers away. And then on Friday, OKC um, away, and then home against Houston on Saturday. There are two Oof. very important games to win this week, just like we talked about. If you want to stay in the playoff race, Portland is going to be one of those teams that we're competing against for the 7th or 8th seed if the Suns are in that mix. And OKC, assuming they continue to try to win, will be one of those teams as well. So those are very, very important games. The other two teams are two of the best teams in the NBA, the Clippers <laughs> Which, yeah. and, 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 the, and the Rockets, who've been very, very good. What do you think? I mean, that's why it's so important to win these two games that you can win. <laughs> right. Because the Suns beat the Clippers, and I, DeAndre Ayton's coming back, so that's something to look forward to. But the Suns beat the Clippers without Paul George. This is going to be a different beast. Um, and I think I've only just realized the extent to which this level um, or, or this part of the Suns' schedule right now uh, is very difficult. They are playing something like 14 or 15 straight games against Western Conference opponents. They're in the middle of it now. But they don't play an Eastern Conference team until they square off against the Knicks uh, on January 3rd, which is wow. crazy to me. Now, you know, obviously you play more games, you play 50 games against the Western Conference or, 
you play 52 games against the Western Conference and you only play 30 against the East. So it makes sense to have more against the West. But just this stretch in particular right now is very difficult. It's why it's very important that the Suns are getting DeAndre Ayton back now. uh, And hopefully things are going to lighten up a little bit uh, in a couple of months when they get to feast on some Eastern teams. Yeah, uh, it's it's a real difficult week in general just because two back-to-backs already. But the t- the second game of each back-to-back is against the Clippers and the Rockets. Uh, so that really uh, amplifies how difficult the back-to-backs are already. Well, Deon- DeAndre will be fresh. DeAndre will be fresh <laughs> against the Clippers. And I think that Clippers game is interesting. The, the Clippers will rest players sometimes. And uh, you, you just kind of hope that they'll rest someone against the Suns for that game. Maybe Kawhi Leonard. Uh, against the Suns there and see if they can get a chance to play them without one of those guys, just like they did at the beginning of the year when uh, Paul George was still injured and it was just the Kawhi Leonard team. Uh, Otherwise, that team is ridiculous right now. Um, They just had both of them scored over 40 points in the last game that they played, uh, and that's just a tough team to, to face. This Portland game will be interesting. It would have been very nice to get DeAndre Ayton back before this Portland game because... Uh, they, they don't have really great center play in general. And we've talked, we've actually surprisingly talked a lot about Portland on this podcast for some reason. They just come up a lot for us. Um, so that'll be interesting. You've heard us talk about that team. Uh, Clippers is going to be t- difficult. That OKC game will be difficult as well because Chris Paul is just so damn smart. And then they have Steven Adams, who we've seen just kind of rock DeAndre in, in the past. Uh, so we'll see if he can, uh, that'll be a good test for him, I guess. We can see if he's improved. Uh, this year and then Houston we know we all know what that's going to look like and um, it won't be fun let's just say that Uh, any other thoughts nope that's it for me this week we will be back once again hopefully we'll be back to recording on Sundays I know the holidays gets a little weird so we'll see what we do around that time of year Uh, but thanks everyone for listening we'll be back next week Um, send us send us all those uh, player of the week songs that you're writing and creating right now Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.